the reinvention of John Ledger of John Ledger. Like John, <laughs> like Legend. John Legend. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we'll be diving into the recently announced, or should I say proposed but not regulator-approved, Sprint T-Mobile merger. (laughs) (laughs) David, you're laughing. Uh, I'm laughing. Who who knows what's... uh what's real these days (laughs) this may be yet another episode where we cover an acquisition much like the broadcom qualcomm merger um, that did not actually happen and so only time will tell but now seems like a really fun time to to dive into the topic hear the crazy stories of both of these companies dating back over a century and dig into the genesis of where um, most of the technology that we use today really, really came together here in the Northwest and specifically in Bellevue, Washington. Well, we'll have to dive in. David, don't give me your answer now. Wait till grading. But are we going from four carriers to three or from two carriers to three? (laughs) Uh, Well, we'll have to wait for that. Uh, But it's funny, in, in our last episode, in the PowerPoint episode, we were, you know, joking that they're like, in the 1980s there were like 11 people who worked in technology uh (laughs) and who who knew that there actually was a related industry that had even fewer people working in it it turns (laughs) out that telecom and the wireless industry in the 80s and 90s had like six people working in it and as you alluded to ben almost all of them were in bellevue washington it's true Well, listeners, if this is your first episode and you like it, or if this is your 50th episode and you've been with us for a long time, we would love a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, really appreciate any any time you you could give to uh, uh, doing that. It helps us promote the show to get great guests and to uh, justify the increasing amount of research that David and I seem to be uh, obsessing over episode by episode. If you are new to the show, you can check out our Slack at Acquired.fm. Uh, join the 1,300 of us that uh, are talking about any tech news, really, but big, big mergers, acquisitions, IPOs, uh, uh, major landmark events that are happening between big corporate entities. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, 
run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. Without any further ado, David, do you want to dive into the history and facts of these uh, behemoth concocted, merged, unmerged, and twisted companies. Well, how long do you have, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listeners, we're only a couple minutes in right now, but uh, you know the uh, the final episode of length. We don't. I, I suspect it ends up being long. Well, let's see. Let's see how fast we can get through this. <laughs> well, like so many of our stories on this show, this one, the story of the modern wireless telecom industry uh, and how it came to be, starts also in Silicon Valley on the Stanford campus. Unlike many of the other stories, though, it doesn't stay there for long. So let's go back to 1969 on the Stanford campus. And there's an undergrad there named Craig McCaw. And Craig is from a fairly wealthy uh, family in Washington State. His father, Elroy McCaw, uh, has been a successful entrepreneur in radio and television broadcasting kind of throughout the Northwest and uh, had been early in local radio stations, local TV stations, and then just had started at this time to get into the very, very nascent cable television business, um, which was just emerging the late 60s, early 70s, and then would obviously grow throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s. But unfortunately, tragedy strikes uh, very, very sadly. And Craig loses his father, Elroy, dies suddenly of a stroke in, in 1969. While Craig is, he's the oldest of, of four brothers, and he's still an undergrad at Stanford, way too early to, to lose one's father uh, for all the, all the children. But Elroy passes away, and it turns out that the company, uh, even though the family you know, was very successful, the company was very successful. They had a lot of debt on the company, as many of these types of broadcasting companies do. And it wasn't structured very well, and they had to, when, when Elroy passed away, they had to basically pay off all this debt. And so it triggered really disaster for the company and the family. They had to sell everything. They had to sell the family's house. The family had a yacht. They had to sell the yacht. They had to sell all the pieces of the business, except one tiny little bit of the cable assets which again this was like cable tv was like non-existent in this time but a very very small cable company division of the company in centralia washington that had somewhere between two and four thousand subscribers that was all that was left <laughs> of basically all of the family's assets 
And so Craig, he's the oldest of the brothers. He's he's still an undergrad at Stanford. I think this is the next year, probably 1970. Uh, he's he's a senior. While he's a senior during while going to school, he takes over running the company to do something and kind of turn the family's fortunes around. And slowly, and he he focuses on the cable business. And slowly, he builds it into a kind of major cable empire over the next ten to fifteen years. And so by the early to mid 1980s, uh, the company was then called Macaw Cablevision. It was the 20th largest cable pay TV provider in all the United States. Um, it was very successful. And Craig's running it and he's still very young. And then something else happens in the early 80s. The advent of wireless cellular phone technology, analog cell phone technology is invented. And to make these calls work, uh, this is the days like people envision this being used as car phones uh, for like wealthy businessmen. To make the technology work, though, you need to have wireless spectrum rights to operate the, the cell services over. And so the FCC, they try a bunch of things to allocate this spectrum throughout the country and get entrepreneurs to build cell phone businesses. They end up landing on holding a lottery. <laughs> so they literally, they, they hold a lottery. You, you, you file an application to win the right to a spectrum license in a given city or geography. And then they, they hold a lottery to see who wins it. It's certainly fair, David. It's it's fair in in some sense <laughs> and uh and craig you know finds out about this it's much discussed and he sort of sees the parallels between the growing cable industry that he's been a part of over the last 10 years and what the cell phone wireless industry could be and sees this as kind of a land grab so he applies for the lottery in a whole bunch of geographies throughout the country um he wins some of them and others, there are lots of like plumbers that are applying and accountants, like just random people like are applying to win these spectrum licenses. It reminds me of the uh, dot com grab. It, it totally it's like a dot com domain name uh, grab, except there are far fewer spectrum licenses than there are dot com names out there. <laughs> After the, the lotteries are held, Craig then goes out and he buys a lot of the licenses from the winners and ends up with basically a, a giant amount of real estate of, uh, of, of spectrum real estate um, throughout the country. He says, okay, well, I'm going to build a cellular telephone company alongside the cable company. He uses debt once again on the cable company to finance building out this wireless telephone network, ends up calling it Macaw Cellular. Uh, and he's kind of first to the game before any, you know, before AT&T, before what was then MCI, uh, Sprint, all of the large wired telephone landline carriers get into the business. Macaw Cellular is uh, is the biggest cell, cell phone business out there or cellular network business. And David, in looking into this, the company Lynn Broadcasting comes up. Do you know how that fits in here? Lynn Broadcasting, um, I, I know a little bit. So there still was, again, all these businesses are all related. There's there's TV broadcasting. So these are like your local ABC, NBC, CBS stations that are literally broadcasting from antennas in cities. Then there's cable TV, pay TV. So that's where you're getting the, you know, in these days it wasn't ESPN yet or, you know, the, but pay TV channels, separate channels, and then sell, sell business. So Macaw had, had gotten also back into the TV broadcasting business that that his father was in. And so they acquired Lynn Broadcasting, which is a major broadcaster, owned a whole bunch of local TV stations throughout the U.S. It was a big purchase, and it was, I think, heavily debt financed to, to make it happen. $3.4 billion purchase. And I believe that Lynn 
operated or maybe still operates a bunch of the local TV stations in New York City. Um, so they were one of the biggest uh, local broadcasters uh, in the country. There's a great New York Times piece from 1990 called Craig McCaw's High Risk Phone Bet. Listeners, if you've never checked out this thing, the New York Times has this amazing tool called the Times Machine, where they basically scan all of their old uh, newspapers before they were digital and then present them as digital articles in the archives the same way you'd be reading any other um, web-based New York Times article. And they actually show you, here's the place in the New York Times business section where this occurred, and they highlighted it. It's, a, it's super cool that, that this is on the internet. And there's a great line in this piece talking about the purchase of Lynn Broadcasting, the gamble to go and build build out uh, you know, a cellular telephone network, and they say, essentially, Craig McCaw is betting that the public will want cellular phones. Today, about 1.5% of the population uses car phones or portable phones. The hope is that figure will rise to 14% in just a decade. <laughs> this was 1990? 1990. Oh my gosh. 14%. I would assume it had to be higher than 14% by 2000. I mean, we oh, hadn't yeah. seen like... I had a cell phone in 2000. Yeah, it was, it I was, was in high probably probably dramatically higher, but it is interesting how you wouldn't have forecasted that the majority of computing or personal computing would happen another decade later on that same form factor on those same data networks. But you know, that's well, people a, thought of it as car phones. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, my parents were lawyers, and they had car phones in their car. Like it was essentially a cell phone, but it was wired, hardwired into the car. That's what people thought it was. They didn't see cell yeah. phones, just like they didn't <laughs> see smartphones that it would all become. Yeah, totally crazy. So I should have mentioned earlier, uh, I don't think I did. As all this was happening, McCaw in, in the beginning days, McCaw graduated from Stanford undergrad and then moved back up to Washington and, and ended up settling in Bellevue. And that's why Bellevue, Washington, uh, just across Lake Washington from Seattle is the at least U.S., if not world headquarters of the cellular phone and wireless industry, which we'll dive back into. So 1986 comes along and the cellular business is growing so much that McCaw ends up selling off the cable business entirely for $790 million in 1986. So 15, 17 years later after, you know, complete the family being completely destitute they sell off the cable business for 790 million dollars in 1986 that's pretty good they focus solely on the cellular business keep growing that over the next couple of years and then four years after ben that article that you read in the new york times in 1994 they end up selling the whole company the cellular business to at&t the old legacy telephone company for 12.6 billion dollars Again, this is 1994. That's a lot of money. The company gets renamed AT&T Wireless. It becomes AT&T's wireless division that you know, barely existed before then, which is just crazy. Ultimately, about 10 years later in, in the early 2000s and 2004, AT&T Wireless merges with a company called Singular. Uh, of course, remember Singular, as I'm sure many, many listeners do here in the US. The company keeps the AT&T Wireless name and moves to Singular's headquarters, which are in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and so that's why AT&T is in Dallas instead of in Bellevue now. But the core of it uh, all came from Bellevue. 1994 Macaw Cellular Trivia Fact. David, what else from the acquired episodes that we have done uh, was related to Macaw Cellular and happened in 1994? Oh my gosh. That's a tough question. <laughs> I should know this, of course, it was, but I don't. It was a, a, a gentleman who was angel investing. Oh, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> How could we forget? So instrumental to 
everything about Acquired, Tom Allberg. Tom Allberg. So Tom was an executive at Macaw Cellular and uh, uh, was was doing a lot with cellular data. And that was the reason he was introduced to Jeff Bezos when Tom started to do some angel investing, uh, because the internet sounded uh, very similar to cellular data to whoever introduced them and decided Tom would be the right person to talk to. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I missed that connection. Like literally <laughs> Amazon comes out of this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bezos yeah. would have been successful, uh, I'm sure, regardless. <laughs> but uh, but certainly yes. Madrona uh, and thus acquired um, is a direct offshoot of all of this. Tom, of course, being, you know, uh, one of the one of the founders of Madrona uh, a few years later. So back to Craig and McCaw after this transaction. I mean, Craig is now one of the wealthiest people in the world up there at this point in time with with Bill Gates, you know, also in the Seattle area. But he's not done. He's still quite young. He's not done. And he's not done with the telecom industry. The sale to AT&T was all in stock. So Craig is now one of the largest shareholders of AT&T, this you know, huge, you know, hundred year long, you know, company, but he doesn't join the board because he doesn't want to have any conflicts because he wants to get back into the business, into the telecom (laughs) business and start competing with them right away all over again. So he starts building a stake, uh, an equity stake in a company called Nextel. I suspect many listeners remember from the uh, late nineties, early 2000s days, the Nextel direct connect walkie talkie on your cell phone. Oh yeah. Craig gets involved in Nextel, starts buying up shares. Uh, by 1995, just a year later, he is uh, controls the majority of the equity in the company as the controlling shareholder. Uh, Nextel was not doing very well at this point in time. He completely turns them around. You know, they end up introducing Direct Connect. They become grow hugely, become much larger. They end up then he sells uh, Nextel in his second transaction to an old legacy telephone company in 2005. Ten years later to Sprint. He sells Nextel for $35 billion. Sprint becomes Sprint Nextel. And that is the core of Sprint's wireless business. Uh, So thus, from one guy, from Craig McCaw, comes both AT&T and Sprint that we know and probably don't love today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but David, that transaction happens in 2005. I was going to do your transition for you. Something happens a year before 2005 and 2004 Craig McCaw does Starts, one more he's thing he's still not done exactly he's still not done he does one more thing he's like he's the Steve Jobs of telecom really <laughs> <laughs> one more thing in 2004 he starts a company called Clearwire and Craig is starting to see I don't know that he necessarily sees smartphones coming in the iPhone but he does see that data over cellular telephone networks is going to be a big thing smartphones you know, exist there's Palm there's you know Microsoft uh, Windows Mobile or whatever they called it back in the day, BlackBerry, all of those things. Uh, so he founds Clearwire, and Clearwire is essentially a, a wireless company, but instead of focusing on voice, it focuses on data. So they end up doing, in, in November 2008, they do a huge deal with Sprint, uh, who just a couple years earlier Craig had sold Nextel to, and Sprint buys half of the company, and Clearwire essentially becomes the data part of Sprint's network, uh, what would become their LTE network. Uh, At the time, it was using a technology called WiMAX, which 
we're not even going to go down that rabbit hole <laughs> in, in the interest of time and our sanity. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is worth noting for listeners, we're already in alphabet soup of sort of companies and companies that are acronyms um, and mergers and acquisitions and spinouts. We're covering like 10% of, of the sort of the depth of what happens <laughs> here in these corporate histories. Uh, we're going to sort of touch lightly on AT&T's breakup by the Department of Justice and the baby bells and all that. But the amount of company smashing and re assembling from different pieces over literally a century here. We just don't have time in the episode no. to do it all. It's like a particle accelerator. They're literally, these companies are smashing at high speeds into one another. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, how I picture it too. But one, one uh, I have two small, um, real fun notes before we wrap up on the McCall portion of the episode here. One, Craig finally does sort of rest his pen after uh, Clearwire uh, has not started any any further uh, telecom companies. But he does pretty well through all of this. He, he currently holds the record for the most expensive car ever purchased. In 2012, at an auction, he bought a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO for over $38 million. Lest you think all of this is just boring telecom stuff, there is a lot of money to be made <laughs> in these industries, um, and, and we should we should say too. In addition to to thirty eight million dollars, you know, historic sports cars, the Macaw family is also one of the most incredibly philanthropic, incredible uh, yeah. families. You know, Macaw Hall in Seattle, tons and tons of charitable organizations. I think, much like Bill Gates, their legacy as a family will actually they'll be remembered more for their philanthropic efforts than for the incredible industrial. Uh, the value they created in, in industry. Basically, every arts organization in Seattle has the Macaw family to thank for um, for their patronage, and um, as as well as so many other organizations in Seattle and throughout the country and the world. The other really fun note, listeners may know that I was involved at Madrona in uh, in starting a company called Rover.com. Rover is now a very successful marketplace in many ways led to lots of great things for um, many people in the Seattle tech scene. And and for me, is a big part of starting Wave and our focus on marketplaces. Uh, Rover originally was not called Rover. It was originally called <laughs> A Place for Rover. A Place for Rover. It was, uh, that is still, I, be, I believe, still the uh, the official name, incorporation name of the company. I know I, I signed the incorporation documents back in the day when we first started it for A Place for Rover. We... We wanted really to get a domain name. We wanted to get the rover.com domain name. And so we were like, this was super early days. We were searching around like, you know, okay, like wait, wait, who has it? Like doing who is lookups, all this stuff. It turned out that the rover.com domain name was owned by Clearwire <laughs> because Clearwire had had a product that they, they introduced and then canceled called the rover and this was like a hockey puck sized device that was essentially a wi-fi hotspot this was like one of the first wi-fi hotspots uh and again clearwire was like a cellular data company and they were like introducing this idea of cellular data so they had this product called the rover and they somehow acquired the domain name rover.com they were selling it they had canceled the product so this is 2011 summer of 2011 when we're starting rover Rover, the company, and uh, they had canceled the product. So they were just sitting on this domain name. It turned out that one of our partners at the time at Madrona was Brian McAndrews, who was the C had been the CEO of Aquaniv, uh, which was Microsoft's largest acquisition before Skype and then LinkedIn. And Brian was was a partner with us at Madrona, and he was on the board of Clearwire and and knew Craig McCaw really well and, and John Stanton, who's going to come into this story in a minute. 
And so we said to Brian, hey, like you're on the board. Can you like, you know, talk to the company, see if we can buy it from them for you? Who, whoever in IT administers <laughs> yeah. that, that domain, like see if you can get there. I know. You know. So you've got this like parked domain name that the company isn't using somewhere in the IT department. You've got board member. coming <laughs> <laughs> in. We ended up getting the deal done. We bought the we bought the domain name. I believe we actually leased it first and then with an option to buy it. And then, and then we bought the rover.com domain name. And and thus one of the world's great marketplaces was born. <laughs> out of out of Macaw Cellular comes Rover. So many things. So many things. So listeners, I'm gonna guess where David is about to go. And there's gonna just start to be a lot of companies involved here. And for folks that uh, haven't heard a lot of these companies before, a really helpful thing to do if you're interested is go to the Seattle Times article called T-Mobile Sprint Deal Would Extend Northwest Long Wireless Rain uh, by Rachel Lerman. Great piece. And there's an amazing infographic by Mark Nolan. It basically has how all of these companies are related to each other, the spinouts, the people behind them, the years that they were, um, that each of the transactions occurred. If you are sort of sitting there on your phone and you want to tap into the show notes and check it out, could be sort of helpful in visualizing. Um, it's certainly helpful as we sit here uh, doing research to... <laughs> Um, to keep ourselves straight. Indeed, indeed. So to pick back up the story, and again, we we apologize for all these companies. Hopefully, the, the graphic will help keep it um, keep it straight, <laughs> and, and we'll try and be we'll try and be as straightforward as possible here. I would argue the second best spin out and, and thing to come out of the Macaw Cellular days, besides Rover, of course, being the first. <laughs> Amazon being third. Apparently. Amazon being third. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it turns out when they were starting the cellular division of Macaw, there were two other people who were pretty instrumental in that besides Craig Macaw. One was a guy named John Stanton. And John was uh, then a recent graduate from Harvard Business School. And he became the first employee on the cellular side of the company. And he eventually became the COO of Macaw Cellular. And the other, the other person that, that uh, ended up being instrumental in what came next uh, was Teresa Gillespie. Terry, she goes by Terry, Terry Gillespie. Uh, she was an SVP at Macaw and was the, the company's controller. She had been a, a public accountant before that. The two of them, they do two important things. One, they get married. That's, uh, I don't know which they would say is more important of that. The other thing they, they do <laughs> is they start T-Mobile. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't, of course, called T-Mobile at the directly. time. Not directly. <laughs> um, but T-Mobile, the T-Mobile we know and love that we are talking about in this episode, John Legere, the uncarrier. Uh, it is, it's John and Terry who, uh, who started that. T-Mobile USA. T-Mobile USA. Yes. Not, uh, not Deutsche Telekom, but we'll get into all that. Okay. We're going back to the late 80s, early 90s. John and Terry, I don't, I don't know if they were married yet, but they're, they're at Macaw Cellular. Terry's on the finance side. Uh, John is the COO of the, the cellular business. Yeah. And, and John had joined in uh, 1982, and the spin-out we're about to, to talk about ha- happened in, in 1994. So a good 12-year span of, of being there at, at Macaw for uh, John actually, uh Actually, 92 it started. The, <laughs> there are too many companies ah. to keep, stra- keep track of. All right. um, but leading up to 1992 and the couple years before, uh, John started realizing so the focus of macaw was urban areas you know again we're thinking like cell phones were car phones at this point in time who used car phones it was like business people cities urban environments um these were not like out in the countryside so there were all these spectrum licenses that you know macaw owned some of them but a lot of them were just ignored out in rural america 
And John kind of had the vision that like, hey, this might this wireless thing, it might become like an even bigger industry someday and maybe everybody will use this. And so he had started buying up these licenses, these spectrum licenses in rural parts of the country, uh, starting in, in rural Washington, I believe. He decided to leave Macaw Cellular. Again, this is like an enormous company. Like people thought he was crazy at the time, like he and Terry. Uh, career suicide to go from like the leading wireless company in the world to, you know, working in, in the boonies, <laughs> essentially. They, they're acquiring these licenses. So they start a company, they call it Pacific Northwest Cellular. They're rolling up all these regional markets. They end up in 1992 acquiring another regional cellular company called General Cellular Corporation. They team up with Hellman and Friedman, the big private equity firm based in San Francisco, to co-purchase it. And then a couple years later, then in 1994, they merge Pacific Northwest Cellular and General Cellular into a company they call it Western Wireless. At this point in time, they're offering service to 19 Western states under the brand Cellular One. I don't know if that rings any bells for anyone. Cellular One Telephone. Uh, in rural areas. And at this point in time, they've started to get some spectrum assets in urban areas as well in cities. And they call that part of the service uh, voice stream, voice stream wireless. Uh, a couple years later, 1996, they take the company public. Then a couple years after that, 1999, voice stream, the urban, the city focused uh, service has actually been growing a lot. They spin that off into a separate public company in 1999. Two years later, 2001, Deutsche Telekom comes in, the big German telephone company, wired and wireless operator, and they buy VoiceStream for $35 billion and rename it T-Mobile USA. And thus, that is how T-Mobile was born. And think about this. Like this is, you know, again, just to recap, Macaw Cellular is <laughs> is sold in, what was it, 1994 for $12.6 billion. So, you know, a lot of money. Not that much longer, 2001, so what's that, seven years later, uh, the protege at Macaw, you know, John Stanton and his, and his, and his wife, Terry, they have created uh, this crazy thing, this rural operator, turned it into voice stream. They sell that for $35 billion to Deutsche Telekom and it becomes T-Mobile. They actually retain Western Wireless, the cellular one, the rural company. That ends, ends up getting acquired a couple years later by Altel for $6 billion. Altel ends up getting split up and getting acquired by mostly by Verizon, uh, small parts of it by AT&T, and is a big part of the Verizon network now. So like, so it's kind of crazy. We, we now have complete coverage. We, we have, now have yes. John Stanton's starting Western Wireless, selling to Altel, which becomes parts of Verizon. We have Macaw Cellular itself uh, becoming AT&T. Getting what became AT&T Wireless. Nextel becoming Sprint. Nextel becoming Sprint. Um, and then lastly, voice stream becoming T-Mobile. Becoming T-Mobile. So we, we have one more uh, event here, one more merger yet to cover <laughs> that will be the, the real bulk of this episode. But yes. that is how we've gotten to where we are today. Well, I don't know if it'll be the bulk. This is, uh, I mean, all this backstory is, um, I hope listeners, you've enjoyed it. Like, it's so fun. And it's fun for us being from Seattle and knowing a bunch of these people and all the people around it. So John and, and Terry, they do continue in the wireless industry. They start a company called Trilogy, which had owned many international wireless assets. And then these days, it's mostly they've turned it into a, a venture investing firm um, based in Seattle. They also own the Seattle Mariners today. <laughs> they do. Um, they do. Incredible. And they are uh, supportive and amazing investors in, in PSL and some of our companies, too. Yep. Um, so it all comes, all comes back home. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit. 
the industry basically operates at steady state. You know, from our point of view, there are like 57 mergers that uh, and acquisitions <laughs> that happen that we're not even like, I can't even keep track of all of them. But basically, this is the state of play. You have AT&T and Verizon, which are the two largest carriers in the U.S. You have uh, Sprint, uh, which was Nextel, um, is the third largest. And then you have the new T-Mobile formerly Voicestream, uh, owned by Deutsche Telekom. That is the fourth largest carrier in the U.S. at this point. And sort of uh, of any of those, the one that's actually breaking the steady state and is sort of doing all sorts of amazing disruptive things to, to steal share ah, pretty yet. much exclusively from... Oh, not yet from sprint but we'll, well get to that <laughs> they're stealing they're stealing um you know some share they're doing some stuff but but actually uh it's kind of sad i mean they're owned by this like super conservative german and german telecom company you know the first decade really from the voice stream acquisition uh through the first decade of t-mobile usa is like eh, it's like okay <laughs> but we fast forward march 2011 at&t announces a deal that they're going to buy T-Mobile USA. Deutsche Telekom's like, all right, you know, this hasn't worked out quite as we thought. Uh, we didn't become the dominant carrier in the U.S. Let's cut our losses. Um, they're going to sell T-Mobile to AT&T for $39 billion. So $4 billion more than they paid for it in 2001. But at least they're going to get out of the game, cut their losses. And, and this is going to reunite, essentially, the Macaw and Stanton and Gillespie branches of the you know, Bellevue, Seattle telecom empires. It's all going to be reunited under one, uh, one company. Uh, it's going to be by far the largest wireless carrier in the U S and that was its downfall because the U S government and the antitrust regulators were like, Nope. <laughs> They're like, wait, AT&T is going to become the most dominant telephone provider to all of the U S we've heard this story before. We've heard we this like story it. before. We don't like it despite bell labs and everything great that came out of that. No, <laughs> the government says no. It doesn't actually end up getting rejected by, they, they don't go so far as to actually um, block the deal, but the companies realize it's not going to happen. They call they, off the merger. Yeah, they, they indicate that it would be a bad idea for you guys to stop doing yeah. the paperwork. Yeah, yeah, good idea to stop doing the paperwork, yeah. So December 2011, the uh, T-Mobile and uh, AT&T call off the merger. And T-Mobile is like in a serious bind now. So the deal fell through. They're distant fourth place behind Sprint and like way, way behind AT&T Verizon. The company is like flatlined. It basically, things suck. <laughs> Morale is terrible. So 2012, this was December 2011, they call off the merger. 2012, they do two things. First, they merge with Metro PCS, which was, I think, the fifth or sixth place carrier in the U.S. So that gives them a little bit more scale, a little bit more coverage. Because remember, coverage is super important. At this point, national coverage is really important. People use their smartphones. We're in the smartphone era. Everywhere, all the time, they travel. If you're, you only get data in your home city and not when you're traveling, that sucks. <laughs> And, and I think Metro PCS unlocked a uh, new addressable market for them in terms of like market segment because it was the pay as you go. It was the sort of lower cost carrier. They could get their infrastructure and coverage and then also sort of a new, uh, a new segment of people that were able to use the broader merged infrastructure also. Yep. Yep. Totally. And we're not even going to get, I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere near cellular standards. We talked about that on the Qualcomm Broadcom episode listeners if you care you can go somewhere else <laughs> it's important technically but but we're not even gonna go there okay 
Metro PCS was a public company. As a result of the merger, the Metro PCS shareholders own 26% of the combined entity. So Deutsche Telekom now owns, uh, what's that, 74% of the company. And then 26% is publicly traded on the U.S. stock markets. Okay, that's one. The other thing they do is they bring in a new CEO to turn around the company after, you know, this disastrous uh, falling through of the merger. And they find a really, a, really boring, <laughs> non-polarizing, run-of-the-mill CEO. Yes. <laughs> yes, that was the plan. So they bring on <laughs> uh, a turnaround expert, a guy who has just sold a company called Global Crossing. We're not going to get into Global Crossing. It's like the most boring wired telecom conference bridge corporate telecom company you can imagine the former the ceo of it had taken over to turn around the company from bankruptcy ended up uh, selling it leading it to an acquisition a three billion dollar acquisition the year before in 2011 so like great this guy turned them around he saved it you know went from zero to three billion hopefully we can do the same let's bring him on see what he can do here this is a guy who before Global Crossing. He had been an executive in the telecom industry at AT&T for almost 20 years. He'd also worked at Dell. So he had a little bit of, you know, you could argue device, you know, sensibility at that point in time. This was like relatively early days of smartphone time, you know, 2012, 2013, whatever. Um, great. Let's bring him in. Uh, what's his name again? His name is John, John Ledger, you know, whatever, some dude, telecom guy. He's got okay. cool hair. He's got he's got long hair. He didn't used to have long hair, but then yeah, after, I don't know if he had that at the time. No, he didn't. I mean, he was like a telecom CEO. He was like sorry, he was like totally buttoned <laughs> up. Uh, but then after they, they, he led to the exit of um, Global Crossing. You know, he sort of like didn't know what to do with his life. He talks about this, and he's like, he bought a Ferrari. He grew his hair long. Whatever. He comes back in Deutsche Telekom. You know, again, big German corporate conservative company. They think they're getting like the turnaround CEO here. So John starts uh, as CEO in the fall of 2012 of T-Mobile. And what is the first thing he do? He, he's from the telecom industry, but he doesn't know a lot about wireless. He's from the wired, corporate wired side of things. Um, so he's like, well, I'm going to learn about what customers think about this company. I'm going to start listening into customer service calls, like literally people calling to complain about their, you know, <laughs> cell phone carrier. So he spends the first couple of months doing this and he's just like aghast. He's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is, un- I have never heard such vitriol <laughs> and anger and angst and hatred being spewed from our customers at us about how much they hate us and they hate the industry and they hate carriers and they hate all this stuff. And he's just like, whoa, <laughs> what have I got myself into? A couple months go by, he's doing this. It's January 2013 at CES in Las Vegas. And CES is, um, you know, in the U.S. There's Mobile World Congress in Barcelona internationally, but in the U.S., CES is typically, at this point in time at least, where cell phone, both, you know, Android manufacturers and um, uh, cell phone carriers would launch all their new products and services and whatnot. And so, John, this is going to be his first keynote address as CEO of of T-Mobile at CES in Vegas 2013. So he goes, they, you know, they're all scheduled. All the T-Mobile execs are there. It's got this whole thing. It's, you know, you know, it's a keynote. And uh, it's the night before at the hotel suite. And John's there and he's talking with the execs or the other senior execs. And he's like, well, what should I wear? What should I wear at this uh, keynote? Now, now, to be fair, this is how the story is told today. Who knows what the reality is? Uh, but, uh, but he's like, what should I wear? And uh, one of the other execs is like, well, I think you're, you know, if you want to look cool these days, you wear a T-shirt under your suit jacket. That's cool, right? And like, okay, so they start riffing on that. 
and uh, the night goes on and apparently things get a little crazy. And John's like, oh, yeah, I'll wear a T-shirt, but let's get a hot pink, you know, T-shirt to go with our corporate colors. And I'll uh, and let's see if let's go out and let's see if we can get uh, a T-shirt made overnight to put the T-Mobile logo on this hot pink T-shirt. I'll wear that under my seat. Things keep going crazy. John shows up the next morning for this keynote. Not only is he wearing a t-shirt under his suit jacket, he's got a suit jacket on, he's got his sleeves rolled up, he's got a Yankees hat on, uh, and he's got a massive silver chain around his neck <laughs> and a bunch of like braid <laughs> bracelets on his wrist. And like, uh, and so he shows up. That We'll link to video of this for the keynote in the show notes. This is amazing. <laughs> so there are all these other T-Mobile like senior execs, you know, there in their like super button-up suits. A bunch of them are European. They came from Germany, like all this stuff. And John's there <laughs> and he looks like i don't know <laughs> i don't even know what to like somebody trying to impersonate 50 cent like <laughs> it's like what's that like how do you do fellow children <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it's amazing so um there's literally this moment uh, again we'll link to it in the video all the other execs are standing in a circle around him as he's giving his keynote and i guess like I don't know. Like there are articles about this afterwards. Apparently he goes off script and makes all this up on the spot. Whether this was all planned, we don't know. Uh, but the story is... Which, which at the time feels like heresy. But if you know about the guy now, you're like, well, of course he went off script. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, so he goes off script and he just starts like during his keynote, he just starts like talking about his experience of you know being on these customer service calls and listening to how much customers hate the industry but instead of talking about how much they hate T-Mobile he starts talking about how much they hate AT&T and he like takes all these shots at AT&T calls their network crap he says there's more truth in online profiles on online dating sites than AT&T has on their network <laughs> maps like it's just crazy and like Remember, this is the telecom industry. People go nuts. People are like, we haven't seen anything this interesting in decades. <laughs> and uh, it gets all this press. And people are like, wow, T-Mobile, Mavericks, they're breaking the rules. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Ledger totally embraces it. He basically goes like full on performance art over the next couple of years. Um, he gets on Twitter. He starts like, you know. And Instagram. He, there's like his Instagram's kind of amazing to follow. Aside from his like uh, AT&T lambasting, there's like, you know, every Sunday he's like, here's me grocery shopping and cooking with the fam. Like he, it's like an intensely personal. He does, yep. He thing. does a live show, a Facebook live show every Sunday. Uh, I think it's called Slow Cooking on Sundays where he's like <laughs> cooking and he's talking about whatever and he's talking about T-Mobile. Uh, he does selfies all the time. He like curses all the time. So there were uh, lots of people, I'm sure, have been wondering sort of how do you pronounce the guy's name? Is it Laguerre? Is it Ledger? He had a tweet a while ago that is, I know there's been some questions about it. It's pronounced, quote, Ledger, as in AT&T is about to jump off the ledger. <laughs> <laughs> His whole persona now is like, we know you hate AT&T and Verizon and like, we are your other answer. And I'm just going to be so obnoxious about that. They, they rebrand T-Mobile as the uncarrier because they're unlike every, any other carrier out there. Legend, he's like getting into fights on Twitter with Donald Trump. Like it's amazing. He has, <laughs> so he has 5.7 million Twitter followers. Now, Randall Stevenson, who's the CEO of AT&T has 123 Twitter followers and has never tweeted. <laughs> And you look at Randall Stevenson and he's like the telecom exec you would expect. And now there's all this like controversy. Apparently they like colluded with the Trump administration and Michael Cohen and all this stuff. It's just like ridiculous. And all this time Ledger's just like F you guys shouting from the rooftops. The 
strategy about, around Ledger has become a corporate strategy where I'll get promoted tweets not from T-Mobile about switching, but promoting John's personal account and just tweets that he's made. I mean, it's it's really become kind of the Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, like cult of personality. Uh, I don't know how it is for employees, but that's at least the public perception of the company is that it is the CEO's persona. Yep, totally. Well, it's a complete, it's like an architected strategy at this point. And Ledger actually talks about it in an interview. Uh, this is a quote from him. The strategy behind it, what they decided is the way to win when you're like, have no way to win is you declare victory. K- Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's basically like he does the Donald Trump playbook. <laughs> declare victory, even though you're obviously like winning at nothing. You just declare victory and then you designate an enemy. Then you attack that enemy and the bigger the enemy, the better. And that's just what he did. Like T-Mobile <laughs> declared victory and it totally works. So this was, this all begins in January, 2013. The company has 19 straight quarters of adding over a million subscribers, net new subscribers. It quickly passes Sprint to become the third largest carrier. They're basically like, there's this giant like vacuum happening in the industry where like subscribers, mostly from Sprint, as you were saying, Ben, but also from AT&T and Verizon are just like getting sucked into, into T-Mobile over the last couple of years. You know, it's been this like crazy PR thing with John as the CEO. It's also, they're putting their money where their mouth is and they're wildly innovating on their product offering relative to the, the leaders AT&T and Verizon in order to get it, get it done. And there's lots of people that swear by T-Mobile. They're like, yeah, 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 the service is worse. Like when I go out in the mountains or whatever, there's no way I'm making a phone call. But they're, they have all this cool zero rating stuff where Netflix doesn't count against my my plan. There's a bunch of plans that have unlimited data that were like way before the AT&T and Verizon ones. Uh, a lot of the ways that AT&T and Verizon plans have gotten better over the last few years are because T-Mobile has pushed the envelope and forced their hand. Honestly, all the credit in the world goes to the U.S. government here. Because this is why they blocked AT&T buying T-Mobile because they're like, this would have prevented competition. What does T-Mobile do? They start like competing incredibly fiercely and it's great for consumers. I mean, five years ago, like it sucked. Like, of course, people hated their cell phone plans. It was so, so crappy and it's still not good, but it's like way better than it used to be. Um, You're not locked into contracts as much anymore. You have unlimited data plans, like all this stuff. And even though T-Mobile didn't like meaningfully steal share from uh, Verizon and AT&T, they did end up making those customers' lives better by existing and forcing the hands. Yep, totally. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work 
for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Okay, one more piece, and then we're going to wrap it up, is that right around the same time that T-Mobile is transforming itself and Ledger's is joining, uh, this is late 2012, early 2013, there emerges another figure in the industry here, one we've talked about in this season, and uh, quite a force unto himself, and that is Masayoshi-san and SoftBank. So this is pre-Vision Fund. This is SoftBank itself and Masa through the company. Remember, SoftBank is the largest mobile carrier in Japan and has investments all around the world in, uh, in mobile carriers. They decide they want to enter the U.S. market and they want to buy Sprint. And so they end up getting into a bidding war with Dish Network, the satellite television provider, because all this is converging. Like, you know, it always has been. It's you know, broadcasting and cable and telephone and, and wireless. It's all the same, or it's all the same business dynamics. They end up winning the bidding war with Dish Network. They buy 78% of Sprint uh, in July 2013 for $21.6 uh, And the best part about this, this bidding war with Dish is that SoftBank makes the offer to, to acquire Sprint Dish Network then announced a higher offer to acquire uh, Sprint Nextel at that point, which they then decide to retract so that they can focus on buying none other than Clearwire, which they also retract, and then Clearwire gets bought by uh, Sprint as well. 
The drama is just too much. I can't handle all the drama. I thought telecom was going to be the most boring thing. There's so much <laughs> drama, it's boring. I think it's boring because like I just can't handle this drama. Like <laughs> it's too much. One quick aside because we would be remiss to cover all this without covering this fun bit of history. Sprint back before Nextel uh, when it acquired, you know, Craig McCaw's second act and um, and became the wireless company. Sprint was a landline telephone operator. They were third behind, I believe third behind AT&T, of course, and the Bells being one, and then MCI, and then, and then Sprint. Sprint, the landline company, started as the Brown Telephone Company in 1899 in Abilene, Kansas, eventually became the Southern Pacific Communications Corporation. They didn't like that name. They decided they need a new name, so they run an internal wait, wait, naming wait. contest. And, and s- and so the, they were the Southern Pacific Communication Company, and it was actually the Southern Pacific part of it comes from the fact that they were part of the Southern Pacific Rail. Like when you think about like that, like uh, American history, like the South Pacific Rail, you know, the or, or formerly known as the Southern Pacific Transportation Company, they actually, th- there was a judicial decision that made it so that they could start providing long distance telephone service because they had a right-of-way where their railroads were. So it only made sense that you need uh, an ability to communicate along those lines for you uh, and, you know, for your company to operate. And so they were actually using microwave communications that were lined up along the side of the railway in order to communicate back and forth between their cities. And so they had this internal communication network that in the early 70s, they decided after this this ExecuNet 2 decision, they could actually decide, hey, we'll, we'll lay fiber optic cables because we own that land, we have that right of way, or at least if we don't own the land, we have the right to sort of lease it and use it. And so then they were able to actually open up that internal network to to other people, which really circumvented the AT&T's monopoly on public telephony and offered this other option as you're a, it's a B2B company, like, hey, you corporation, do you want to use this private line that we run between cities that we buried a wire next to our railroad? Like thinking about that infrastructure is completely nuts. It's totally nuts. Well, so do you want to finish the story about the naming contest? I, I, w- I would love to finish the story. This is like one of my favorite facts. And I've mentioned it to uh, friends and some listeners of the show. Like, I can't believe this is a thing. Sprint, while a cool word, is actually an acronym. And the the contest that David was referring to, the, the uh, naming contest for what would be better than Southern, you know, SPC or the the Southern Pacific Communications Company is Sprint, the Southern Pacific Railroad Internal Network Communications. Internal Network Telecommunications. Telecommunications. Yes. Got to get the T in there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unreal. Well, that's where Sprint comes from. Okay. Back to SoftBank and Masayoshi-san. They win. Masa likes to win, as we have um, seen on this show and uh, in all of our daily lives. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Masa wins. Not only does he win acquiring a majority of Sprint, but as Ben alluded to, Dish focused instead on Clearwire. He beats Dish at Clearwire too. Sprint ends up acquiring Clearwire as well. Uh, It already owned 50%. They own the rest of it. Dish walks away empty-handed. Okay, so all this happens in 2013. But then over the next couple of years, Sprint is like a punching bag, like literally T-Mobile and, and John Ledger, even though they're focusing, you know, he's focusing his tweets on AT&T. They're just like literally delivering body blows to Sprint and like Sprint at that point in time was bigger than T-Mobile. Now they are way smaller. T-Mobile is just taking basically all of their customers. Masa, of course, is, is not oblivious to this. 
late 2013, early 2014, news comes out that, um, and I, I think this was probably Masa's plan all along, was use get into Sprint, use that as a way to get into the U.S. market, and then roll it up with T-Mobile. News comes out that uh, Sprint and Masa are working on a plan to acquire T-Mobile and merge the two companies. And what year is this, David? This is not now. <laughs> this is uh, 2013, late 2013, early 2014. Once again, regulators, just like they did with AT&T and, uh, and T-Mobile the first time, were like, I don't know about that. You might not want to do that. So they abandoned the deal. Remember, Which this- is interesting because they were not the first player, not the second player. Like they, you know, they, I think they were three and four then, maybe three and five. Three, um, three and four. But- Sprint was three uh, and T-Mobile was four at this point in time. But remember, Sprint, you know, sucked. Uh, <laughs> they, they were not uh, uh, doing what T-Mobile is doing now, which we'll get into uh, in discussion. They're working on the deal. They, they abandoned it. Sprint's like, okay, we got to be cool too. Uh, we got to be, you know, an uncarrier. What can we do? They're looking around. They're like, oh, we're going to make an investment in a really hip, cool new company. <laughs> I was hoping you found oh, this. Yes. This is going to be my... Oh, yes. Uh. <laughs> this is the best part of the whole episode. We're going to be so cool. <laughs> January 2017, they buy a 33% minority stake in the hottest, the hottest (laughs) streaming music company around. Oh, that's right. You guessed it. As covered on acquired title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jay Z. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't work out so well. Uh, So, wait, David, do do, do they still still own 33% of title, right? Does title exist? It does. It does. It really? Yep. I think they do. I don't know. Because, <laughs> like, presumably if this goes through, then, like, T-Mobile owns some of Tidal. It's just, uh, wow. I would love to see Tidal with, you know, T-Mobile. Anyway, <laughs> clearly that doesn't work. So now that was January 2017. By mid-2017, SoftBank and Masa are just, like, literally, you know, fist palming like <laughs> face palming uh maybe fist palm, maybe literally bashing themselves in the head like this is not working <laughs> sprint sucks how are we gonna you know rationalize all this They're like okay if we can't acquire t-mobile maybe we'll sell sprint to you um, by the way uh, as an aside yeah you can you can stream j-lo featuring dj khalid uh and cardi b right now on title oh that actually so sounds pretty i definitely would like exists. to listen to that wow. <laughs> <laughs> cardi b is awesome by the way um okay so softbank they're trying to sell he's like i'm gonna sell sprint to deutsche telecom to the parent company that who you know still owns 70 some odd percent of of t-mobile this is great i'm gonna sell sprint to deutsche telecom they can't agree on price get the deal done Finally now, uh, a couple weeks ago, April 29th, 2018, they take a new tack. Clearly, John Ledger, you know, <laughs> the the boring turnaround CEO, like, he's one. He's, like, the man. We just got to have him do this. T-Mobile and uh, Sprint are going to, they've announced that they're going to merge directly. So, whereas before, it was Sprint was going to buy T-Mobile. Then it was SoftBank was going to sell Sprint to Deutsche Telekom. Again, leaving T-Mobile kind of, you know, they would get merged, but all, but like, nope, T-Mobile wins. Uh, T-Mobile is going to be the combined company. It's going to be based in Bellevue. John Ledger is going to remain the CEO. I mean, they are essentially taking over Sprint. Deutsche Telekom will have a 42% stake in the combined company. SoftBank will have a 27% stake. The rest will be publicly traded. Masa will be on the board. 
Um, I love that it's like billed as a merger when it's 9.75 Sprint shares for every one T-Mobile share. No. Well, I mean, there's shares because the share price, I mean, that that share counts don't matter. But like clearly T-Mobile is is taking over the company here. The enterprise value of the deal, uh, so this includes debt in addition to the equity, uh, values Sprint at $59 billion and $146 billion for the combined company, so $87 billion for T-Mobile. Whew. And there we have it. As we alluded to in the beginning of the show and talked about throughout, who knows if this is actually going to happen? <laughs> this is the third time that two of the four major U.S. telecom wireless carriers have tried to merge. The government blocked it the first time with AT&T and T-Mobile and then was going to the second time when Sprint was going to buy T-Mobile. Why is it going to be different this time is the question. It was these exact companies and their exact market positions. But it was Sprint it was a different acquiring T-Mobile. Different administration. Sh- sure. Uh, it was a different administration. I mean, T-Mobile is a majority foreign-owned company. So you have a majority foreign-owned company also basically is Sprint buying. Owned by software. Right, buying an, another majority foreign-owned company. So you could make an argument like, well, it's not really a, an overseas business buying an American business. So it's more like an, or a foreign subsidiary buying another foreign subsidiary. So at least that's not going to set off the alarm bells that, you know, an American company being owned by um, an, uh, someone overseas, that that sort of transaction would set off. The company is very confident that the, this thing is going to happen, and they've released lots and lots of materials. It's actually pretty hilarious if you go and look at um, their T-Mobile's investor relations site. Like the press release is completely over the top. It's like hilarious. for folks who've written a press yeah. release, like the type of language that you put in there, this is like John Ledger writing a press release. It's like here's all the great reasons why this is amazing for everyone, including <laughs> people looking for jobs. We're going to create so many jobs. Also, also. Our shareholders should be happy because there's economies of scale. <laughs> and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Those things. How? Wait. Say again. How this is going to create jobs while you're, you know, deduplicating a lot of your infrastructure. So uh, like, it's it's almost to the point where like they're they're selling so hard that this is good for everyone in America, no matter what position that you're in. Uh, that they may even open themselves to like <laughs> the, the the risk of people being like, wait, what? This makes no sense. Well, at all. and the headline of the press release. The headline is T-Mobile and Sprint to combine accelerating 5G innovation. Okay. And increasing competition. Wait, what? You're literally taking two competitors and you're merging them and then you're saying that's going to increase competition. But actually, I mean, I think where I come out on this, why is why would it be different this time? I actually think that is the kernel of it, which is that the last time it was Sprint, which sucked, buying T-Mobile. So it's like, okay, you're going to go from, you know, three sucky and one sort of now somewhat interesting uh, consumer option to uh, just three sucky ones. Now you're going from three sucky and one like, you know, oh, really interesting to a bigger, really interesting one. So I think the thesis is like, now we can compete head on with AT&T and Verizon with our uncarrier strategy. Yes. I don't know. (laughs) So I buy your logic. Here is the explanation from the T-Mobile press release. This isn't a case of going from four to three companies. There are now at least seven or eight big competitors in this converging market. And in 5G, we'll go from zero to one. Like we are the only, we're going to be the only 5G company uh, that's thin. And this like seven or eight big competitors thing is like, well, I mean, you guys are merging for a reason. Like it doesn't feel like anyone else is really a competitor other than those two. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're increasing competition because it, before the merger, there were four companies. It's going down to three, but they're creating four new competitors out of thin air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, well, I was going through this. I was trying to figure out, like, who are the other three or four? I think that they're arguing that it's like... Um, to our point earlier in the show that all of these businesses are related, that it's like Comcast and it's, um, you know, Dish Network and, well, DirecTV is part of AT&T now, so they can't claim that. But it's that there's going to be a convergence between television companies and satellite companies and wireless carriers. I, I, I don't know. I mean, they're probably right. Where I net out is in a similar place to where you net out that like this, th- th- there's so much cost associated with building and maintaining the infrastructure necessary to be a wireless quote-unquote telephone provider uh, these days that you need to be of a sufficient scale in order to do that and neither T-Mobile or Sprint are so I buy the argument that we're going from two to three particularly with the 5G build out coming I just think in many ways uh, T-Mobile may have sold past the close (laughs) (laughs) on the other hand though I mean like you need to sell hard because obviously the the government blocked it um but it was a different administration um blocked it before but all right it is actually so i i want to say a couple more quick things so so there is a website you can go to all for 5g.com they've actually stood up a public facing website of, of that's basically a pr campaign to to appeal to regulators for folks who have been making pitch decks for for startups like there's kind of an amazing allegory if you go look at their their this investor.tmobile.com creating a robust competition in the 5G era. It's a slide deck that violates all the rules of uh, what you should do to pitch your startup company to VCs. But it's very like in true John Ledger style. It's incredibly direct and very like uh, flamboyant about how great they are. So like the the first slide of any substance, the title is highly compelling combination. You get page after page after page of like tons of bullet points, tons of you. You actually kind of lose the narrative a little bit in in how many advantages this is going to have for everyone in the world. There's Ooh, look at those a, guys. A slide with, <laughs> there's a slide that has two different. The left side says amazing innovation, and it has the logos of Uber, Lyft, Instagram, <laughs> Snapchat, Tinder, and Venmo. And on the right, it has a, a, a headline called Global Leaders, and it has Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, and Facebook and what <laughs> like <laughs> i'll just leave it at that like it's 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 a really fun slide deck to go and look at and because that you, department you, of justice is why you should approve this merger <laughs> yeah yeah wow all right anyway that's our section on on risk to why the deal may not get done yeah uh um i don't know if i'm glad or not glad that i'm not a department of justice lawyer i actually don't know what the right answer is here I don't either. I, I on the surface and have, after spending four or five hours looking into this, I, I, I'm for it. But like, I think it's going to be good for if you take the lens of good for competition, good for yeah, going from two American to three people as customers. It, I'm 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 in on that argument. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think I am too. But, um, well, category. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I want to say one thing before moving out of that's actually more of the acquisition history and facts. It's interesting to note that the wireless industry was growing massively from the time when SoftBank bought Sprint until today. And SoftBank bought Sprint, they bought 70% for what was it, $21 billion? Uh, 78%. Yep. 21.6 billion. 78%. 
and and today, you know, the the enterprise value, or I'm sorry, the 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 market cap, or not today, but at the day that it was announced, was twenty six point five billion. And I think SoftBank lost money. Yeah, it, despite the fact that that it was a tremendously growing market. And T-Mobile has been taking all of the growth, like. Uh, for a number of years, T-Mobile was growing at more than 100% of the industry, meaning that all of the growth of the industry was uh, going to T-Mobile. I mean, some of it was going to other carriers, but they were taking so much share from the other carriers that as much as the whole industry grew, T-Mobile grew more. And and most of that was at the cost of Sprint. In acquisition category, I'm trying to remember how we categorize Zillow Trulia and Alaska Virgin, because it's in that same category of consolidation. For folks who are new to the show, usually we say people, technology, business line, asset, or other. I guess it's a business line, but it's it's the same business line that they have. So it's really, you know, it's I think it's it's, it's just consolidation, it's consolidation to realize yeah, economies yeah. of scale. Yeah, 100%. And the one thing that we haven't touched on yet is there actually is kind of a synergy here where... and. Oh man, I, we need like a buzzer. Like how many episodes have we made it since I last said synergy? I hope a lot. Um, but there actually is something that makes a lot of sense here. And that's that the unfinalized 5G network spec, there's a lot of sort of things that may be 5G. So when people are talking about 5G, we don't yet quite know what it is. And it's not just adding one more G, like it's a very different thing. We neither are qualified to nor have the time to go into all, all the technical things here. But basically, people believe that the 5G network is going to require a lot more antennas. So it's going to be a very expensive build out. You're going to see in some sort of all over cities um, that it's going to require a much higher, I believe it's a much higher wavelength. Let me look this up real quick. A much higher frequency spectrum. So T-Mobile has lots of spectrum in the 600 megahertz range where they operate now. Um, you're going to need a, a much higher frequency uh, spectrum in order to deploy the 5G networks. Guess who has that from the Clearwire acquisition? It's Sprint. So Sprint actually has... Craig McCall the, strikes the, again. The, that's right. The spectrum that is likely needed for uh, what 5G will be, well, they have no money. Like they're way, way, way in debt. So Sprint has no way to do the expensive build out necessary to compete on the spectrum that they actually have the rights to. And so T-Mobile, while still not in like an amazing cash position, is is in a much better place than Sprint is to actually build out the network that that needs to happen to run the the sort of next generation technology. So imagine VR over yep, 5G. Yep and these super high bandwidth things. So th there is something that makes lots of sense of, hey, you guys, Sprint, have this asset, but lots of debt. Uh, we're in a decent financial position and are a growth company. Bring that over here, we'll develop it, and then we can really compete. Maybe you can argue that in the not-too-distant future, uh, Comcast and the like are competitors in this world. Because like, come 5G, are you still going to have a wired internet connection into your home? probably not right it's just more convenient like why would you do this is, is it going to go the way of the landline right like if all of the you know video content television and faster internet is just why why would you run a wire into your home and have a thing it's just you know have your have your wireless devices right like who needs wi-fi if you get um it depends the speed man i love my love my gigabit connection oh totally right but what if you get that over wireless yeah, and that's the thing. I don't. I don't know enough about five G of what that will look like yet. Um, yeah, me neither. Or, or how far away it is. Um, yeah. So, yeah, totally consolidation uh, for the business line. 
I, I'm scared of what would have happened otherwise. There's just too much here. <laughs> I, There's one thing I want to throw out. Uh, yeah, what would have happened otherwise had this merger not happened and like 50% chance that, that it still that it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. Um, this is something I want to sort of ask you and pick your your investor brain on. After the after the the deal was announced, both companies' share prices dropped dramatically. Like no, neither company's shareholders like this deal. Hmm. And so, you know that it's interesting that they can yeah. announce a merger that's going to have a certain enterprise value that val- that that places a, a value on Sprint at uh, you know that's based on their current market cap. Their market cap has dropped. And as they are working the deal out, so sort of how does that work? What happens? What does it signal about the the shareholders of those companies? Does it mean that they shouldn't do the deal or that they can't do the deal because there's not enough? I I don't know. I wonder if it's actually doesn't say much about the strategic value of the deal, but more about the regulatory risk. Like if you're a shareholder in those companies and it's a, it's a stock deal, a combination. And since both companies share price drops, I wonder if the, the thesis that investors have is like, uh, there's a huge regulatory risk here. So these companies are going down the path with all this distraction, spending all this money on this merger. And then if it's going to get blocked, it's going to be a total waste. And then like, and then what? And I think I remember reading, I, I could be wrong here, but I think I remember reading somewhere that there is, not a large breakup fee associated with the deal because there was in the past and that was one of the reasons why the uh, government was uh, against the deal because they were like well clearly you think there's a lot of risk here because you have this huge breakup fee and I, I believe there's not this time and so essentially the the value of that breakup fee is what is supposed to guard against this from a shareholder perspective and if there is no breakup fee then like you're assuming a lot of risk to the deal not getting done because of regulatory issues. I, I could be completely wrong on all this but I think that might be what's going on oh, I like that hypothesis and to put some numbers behind it uh, T-Mobile share price went from $64 before it was announced down to 56 and Sprint's went from the uh, high high value of $6.50 <laughs> down to uh, uh, $5.10 so you know what mar- what matters there is the market cap so current market caps of both companies are, are $47 billion for T-Mobile and uh um, twenty billion dollars for for Sprint, but um, but that doesn't just, include it, it, the debt for either, right? Um, so right, which is which is massive. massive like we should yes. we should also say like it's, it's it's worth touching on for these companies. I did a little math earlier. Sprint's uh, total current liabilities and long term debt is forty two billion, and T Mobile's is twenty four billion. Oh wow! So T Mobile's much better capitalized with uh, what did you say yep. their market cap is like forty something? Uh, forty seven point seven. Okay, so forty seven. Uh, billion dollar market cap equity value versus 20 something billion 20, in debt 24, whereas sprint yeah. is probably what like one to less more debt than equity right yes yeah yeah so there you have it well do you tech themes yeah let's do it one of them is how much 5g is talked about in the reason for this combination and it's something that's completely it's not locked and it's not fully known what is going to be necessary. And it's it's talked about for a business reason for this to happen long before it's going to be fully built out and available for customers. And like we've just seen this before with with 3G, with LTE. Like it, it was it was this like nebulous, unclear thing until it wasn't. And there was like always a three or four year period where where there was business hype around it um, and reasons why certain carriers were going to be in a better position than other carriers. Sort of before it was actually a thing. And it's it's just. Um, 
like I've been trying to tamp my expectations around what 5G is going to be so far just because I feel like I've seen this movie before. On the other hand, though, like, yeah, I agree. Like, there's so much hype. It's overblown, all this stuff. But, like, think about our data networks now versus, like, 2008 or 2010 or 2012. Like, I don't really think about or care when I go off Wi-Fi on my phone and I can still do everything. That, that was not the case back then, at least in the U.S. That was not the case. My main tech team is I was trying to think about, like, what is up with this industry and these businesses and like people don't pay a lot of attention to it. It's super boring. Hopefully you guys found the episode interesting. Uh, we had fun uh, researching at least, but like why does Masa care so much about this? And like, I mean, he's, uh, as we talked about on the SoftBank episode, like most of his whole career uh, has been in these types of phone uh, wireless businesses or you know hard asset utility like uh, cash flow businesses and then you know telling the stories here of of the McCaw family and uh, the Stanton Gillespies and like how successful they were as entrepreneurs and how much money they made what's up with these businesses and and I think that we're kind of brought back to me and made me think about it is like they are stable cash flow businesses. Like these are Warren Buffett style businesses, meaning that yes, there is existential risk to them over like the multi-decade long period where like broadcasting went to cable, went to wireless. Like there is transition that happens, but during those periods, you have customers locked into paying you like a hundred to one hundred fifty dollars a month, and it you know like customers by customers we mean like basically every person in america <laughs> or in the world or whatever geography you're in like that's a lot of money with very predictable stable cash flows and you can use that to just create enormous businesses and so i think about like how can you apply that to the internet and internet business models actually one of our investments that we're making right now at wave is um a form of a subscription type business uh, uh it has marketplace aspects but subscription businesses uh i'm kind of coming around on like how powerful they can be like this is what netflix is this is what you know amazon prime is this is like if you know like how much money your customers are going to give you and there's low churn you know in perpetuity you can architect really amazing businesses around them um, and use it to do lots of things so subscription businesses perhaps still yet underrated to generalize that to something we've talked about more on the show and, and really specifically the SoftBank episode, stable and predictable cash flows. You can do amazing, amazing things when you have that in your business. Yep. Yep. Well, this, that's, you know, you're preaching to the, the Warren Buffett choir there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Anything else on tech themes? Not that we haven't already touched. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Uh, all right. Grading. <laughs> what are we grading here? Are we grading I, I, this I, deal I, if it goes through? It's we're grading this deal if it goes through for shareholders of what is it current shareholders of AT and T. Uh, oh God, current shareholders of T Mobile. I think we have to do it for both though because it's is, it's a stock deal. It's a merger. Like the yeah. but it's Deutsche Telekom and SoftBank and public shareholders here are all have uh, stake in the upside at risk here. Is there more value when all the dust settles than than existed before by combining if it goes through? Yeah, I got to say 100%, right? Like if it goes through now, look, is this going to create a trillion dollars in value like, you know, Next did or, or you know, Instagram maybe will or something like that? Like, no, if this goes through and goes through the regulators, like 100% this is a great idea uh, and is going to enable these companies to compete uh, with AT&T and Verizon uh, in a way that they couldn't before. 
that's where I come down. I can't, I, this may be the first one where it's like, just, it feels silly to actually kind of arbitrarily pick a pseudo, like a grade, because it would be a pseudo high, but high, high variance grade. But like, you know, I, I, I completely agree. I think this is the right move for, for all shareholders to do this. Number one, it has to clear regulation, and then it's an execution challenge from there to, to do it well. Well, and it really is a merger. It's not like there's a winner and a loser. It's like everybody's in the same boat all together here. Right. Uh, right. We decided shares of this new thing are a better idea than each of us having shares in our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What does that make it? Does that make it an A? I mean, I don't know. I guess it, it, yeah, it it breaks our scale is what it does. It breaks our scale. It's in a, it's in the multiverse. It's in a different, uh, different physical dimension. What I'd like to do at some point is chart all these, like what the X axis being episode and the Y axis being A, B, C, D, F, and then like have error bars, like for the variants that, that we (laughs) wish to assign each of those. But, uh, that would be cool. I, I, I don't know, like B plus, A minus with high variance. Hard yeah, to. Yeah. That actually would be really cool. It, any any listeners, is, if you want to do a created and acquired data visualization on that, that would be <laughs> awesome. We'll put it on the site. <laughs> we absolutely would. Yeah. My question is like, is this the right time to do this? Like, is should if politically, like, should they have waited for a different administration? I mean, the issue is if you decide to wait two years and th- or three years or whatever and roll the dice is the market so sufficiently different? Like the time kind of has to be now. And the question is, well, I think this administration is probably going to be the most favorable to something I like this. Think. Uh, certainly more so than a democratic administration than a Democrat administration. Yeah. I, I don't know. We this still live in I a democracy. On, despite move appearances. on to the next. <laughs> um, this, is, this is where we should cut to the next section. Yeah. Let's just go to the next. Section. All right. <laughs> um, okay. That sounds good to me. Uh, Carvelts. Yeah, I, there was an awesome podcast episode with uh, Andrew Chen of andrewchen.co, the amazing growth marketer who formerly was growth at Uber and now is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz as of about a month ago. Uh, he was on Intercom's podcast, and Inter- Intercom has a great podcast on on growth, and Andrew is kind of the foremost thinker on this and was there at the early days of what is growth hacking and helping to define it and and figure out um, that in a large organization, you can have a, a growth team that really sits between product and marketing that is really thinking about what are, are intrinsic things we could do to the product that would make us acquire users better um, and cheaper and and have sort of that viral growth rather than um, going and, and spending on advertising. And he talks a lot about sort of strategies at Dropbox where that was done. The thing people always think about is that, you know, get, get free space by getting someone to, to sign up, but how so much more of it actually came from being able to share folders because that was an intrinsic tweak to the product that made it more inherently viral and then cites a bunch of different other examples of similar things and what he looks for in B2B companies being able to leverage sort of consumer style network effects both within and outside of companies. The big overarching point that he's making is that growth marketing is really about frontier technology and being a person who learns how to harness a frontier technology before it all turns into crap. And eventually all acquisition channels turn into crap. And how fast can you figure out what the new frontier tech is and harness that to be able to uh, 
um, create something that that spreads virally on that that fits a person's need in a really perfect way. And it's just a really good, it's not long, it's like a half hour or something, but really good framing. And anybody who's listening to this podcast really doesn't care about long, long episodes anyway. <laughs> but it's a really good, uh, it's a really good framing of what is growth marketing? What should I be looking for in trying to create the next product that that grows like wildfire? And what technologies and platforms do I need to be paying attention to now because none of the old tricks will work anymore. And that's the way it's always been. It's just a matter of the cycle of one new tricks shift to old. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like, it is like a law of nature, like all all acquisition channels turn into crap uh, at some decay rate. You know, we talked like Spotify, you know, growing on the back of the Facebook network or you know whatever what have you uh, instagram growing on twitter uh, it's ultimately an exploit that's yeah. like novel at first and then people get sick of whatever you're yeah. doing to them airbnb growing on craigslist uh you know they're so <laughs> i think about the scooter companies and the bike companies like growing on having your thing on the sidewalk <laughs> like you know, yes that's he not- actually that's he points that out he's somebody they, they ask him what's the what's your favorite um onboarding tactic recently and he was like non-software ones like the onboarding tactic of one seeing green bikes everywhere and two seeing people having fun on them every time i pass them like that's the best onboarding ever yeah it's great but it's not going to work forever at a certain point there's going to be so much crap on the sidewalk that cities are going <laughs> right. to legislate it out or people are just not going to care anymore <laughs> sidewalks are going to look like my app screen like my, my home, <laughs> home screen. screen yeah remember home screen uh real estate was like a good tactic for a while and then people are like no more apps on my home screen all right my carve out also a podcast a whole podcast series not a, not an episode a podcast itself uh the 996 podcast this is great uh so it's done by zara zhang and uh hans tung at ggb capital uh which is a really really great uh vc firm and investor both in the u.s and china they do cross-border U.S. and China and are in some of the largest Chinese internet companies early and, and great companies here in the U.S. Uh, anyway, this podcast, 996, and they also have a newsletter, is by far the best that I have ever seen take on uh, English language take an explanation of what is going on in tech in China. And so like, if you care about tech today, like you've got to care about China, whether you operate in China or not, like there's just so much innovation over there. Like a certain point in the last like really in the last year i feel like the pace and like leadership of tech innovation shifted from silicon valley to china or at least it's on par this is a great podcast uh, for understanding um, what's going on they have great guests um and i uh, can't recommend it enough i listened to the first episode this morning on uh, on your recommendation and uh, excited to dig into more yeah. The first episodes with, uh, the, you know, uh, Jerry Yang, Jerry Yang. So like it, to the extent where you're like, huh, how did that Alibaba deal go down? And what was the thinking there? And how did that, you know, logistically work to, uh, have that relationship in China and work with the government and work with it? It's, it's a really cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. And then they have, they have one of the co-founders of Xiaomi and, um, um, they talk about all the bike sharing companies and highly recommend if you, uh, like our, our show, I think you will like theirs. Um, equally well i think that's what we got i think that's it if this is your first time listening to an episode and you liked it you should totally subscribe from your favorite podcast client and we would love a review and that can happen wherever you choose and that is all we have for you thanks to the telecom industry for providing a century of insane deals going down to give us the fodder for this research. Uh, yeah. Uh, without, uh, thanks to the telecom industry for providing Amazon <laughs> and, <laughs> and Rover and, uh, and Madrona and, uh, the acquired podcast. So 
<laughs> there you go. There we go. All right. Have a good one, everyone. Later. Thank you.